John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. In recent weeks, I've come across a number of individuals who are into zombies. Uh, they like the movies, they like the books, uh, the TV shows. And so I wound up watching a lecture from somebody who believes that the reason that a lot of these zombie stories are capturing people's imagination, it's not simply because they're scary or because they're funny or whatever else is part of these zombie stories, but, but some people are identifying in some way with, uh, with the, the, the zombie concept. Um, he's saying that some of the writers of these stories are not just trying to entertain or frighten people, but they're actually offering a form of social critique that in a consumer society, uh, many of us feel more and more like we're just going through life to eat the next thing and there's not much more going on for us. Um, I wonder how many of you, if you had to choose uh, between uh, checking two boxes today, would you choose the description fullness of life or would you choose walking dead? Um, what resonates more with where you're at? We're looking at the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel over the course of this year and one of the things we noted as we began last week 
is that John says he's written this book so that we would have life. But what is he even talking about? Uh, what is life? Do you, do you know it when you hear about it or, uh, or how do you even describe it? I think a lot of us would first try to grasp biological terms. And so yes, uh, we're here, our hearts are beating, our lungs are breathing. But would you say that you're full of life? Maybe some of you. But some of you might say, actually, I feel a little bit more like walking dead. In that this zombie figure, it's this bizarre kind of life after death, right? Zombies are human beings who have died, and yet they continue with a kind of an existence where they're not thinking, they're not really talking, they're, there's groups of them, but there's not real community, they're traveling in packs, um, and, and technically they're, they're animated beings, but their only purpose is to, uh, to keep themselves sustained by eating others, and, and the particular zombie stories often have the eating of brains. Think of that. The, uh, what is life? Well, is it consciousness? Is it more than biology? Is it thinking? Is it the ability to speak and articulate? Well, these zombies are consuming the one organ that we may most associate with life from a biological perspective. And there's something there that I think, look, each of us are in different places, but some might be bored and feel like, yeah, that's, that's me. I feel like I'm without meaning. Some are anxious and overwhelmed, feeling like this life is not exciting me. Some are without an expectation of hope for the future. I think all of us would say there, there's a greater fullness that I want. There's something more that would be good to have, and maybe you've tasted it at a period of life where you're seeing it in other people. John is not saying that there's a quick fairy tale fix, but he's saying there is real life. There's real growth and change that's possible. And so what I want to talk about today is I want to begin with this idea of lifeless life, the human experience, the fact that we're not thriving most of the time. But then I want to talk about new life, what John says is possible in this chapter. And then I want to talk about fullness of life, the vision that God, John gives us of what's possible. So lifeless life, new life, and full life. Beginning with lifeless life, the sense in which for much of the time, a lot of us probably feel we're not thriving. And so there's a number of places in the Bible where uh, the picture of God from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we meet God where God is the creator and sustainer of life. So there's a sense in which we know where life comes from. We know who gives life. And yet there's a human problem that for some reason we tend to think it's advantageous to, to distance ourselves from God. And, and there's numerous descriptions in the Bible, including the passage we're looking at today, that talks, that, that uses imagery to describe that reality. So another passage you could go to is Romans chapter 1, where in that passage it says that God's eternal power and divine nature have been seen. So, so from the beginning, human beings know about God. Societies tend to be religious. We believe that there must be something bigger, somebody or something that started everything. But he goes on to say that even if this was clearly conceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, uh, Paul goes on in Romans 1 to say that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, uh, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
So the imagery he gives is that, that in not really knowing God, not really understanding, not growing in relationship with God, but moving away from God, there's a foolishness that one of the images to describe that is it's, it's like a darkening. And, th and that's the imagery that John uses as he picks up the language of Genesis 1, as, as he points us to this life-giving God as a creator. And, and, and what he's claiming is that the coming of Jesus is, is a new creative work. There's something profound and remarkable. Um, but in the same way that Genesis 1 begins with God speaking, let there be light. Uh, so Jesus' coming is, is God's word having to come into a context of darkness. And that imagery for us helps us understand what John assumes is our issue, which is that, uh, that the imagery of darkness, you could play that out in other sort of uh, ideas in the Bible, the idea that we're lost, for example. We're looking for life. Maybe we're looking for God, but we don't know him, so he's hard to find. And the claim of John's gospel is Jesus came looking for us. So he comes into the world because God's concern is to give us the life that we don't have and we are not finding. And so in verse 10, speaking now of Jesus, he says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So there's the thing, that the, the claims that John makes about Jesus, if, if you're sort of one that's wondering, where did Jesus claim to be divine or preexistent? These are really hard questions to grapple with. Was Jesus more than just another human being? Uh, the passage we're in and the section we're in is a great place to go to have these claims that he was in the beginning, he was the very God who came. Um, John is making these great claims about this person who came, but he's saying human beings who, who maybe know about God, but so misunderstand that when Jesus comes bringing the fullness of God, we, our knowledge of God is so insufficient that instead of recognizing it and embracing it, uh, we so misunderstood that we wound up rejecting him. So he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So in verses 3 and 4, without him was not anything that was made, uh, was not anything made that was made. In him was life. So the one through whom all things are made, the one who has life comes, and we don't have the proper categories to see, to receive, to understand. And, and the claim here is that there's a, a central organizing principle in life, a, a, a God-centered, a Christ-centered reality that is life-giving, but if we're, if we're not grounded there, we'll find that life is instead withering, that there is uh, a decline. And so what happens is, you know, a lot of times in church, we talk about things that we run after for life instead of God. So money or achievement or comfort or any number of things where, where we say, you know what, there's something not satisfying in life and I want more, so I'm going to run after one of these things. And, and if, you, if you focus on any one thing, it should be obvious to most of us that there's danger in making any one of these things our lives. What happens, though, is without something that, that's holding our lives together, inadvertently, sometimes we wind up pursuing a number of things simultaneously because it's the best we can do, but we find that at the end, that, that more comprehensive life plan still doesn't satisfy. So what I mean by this, for example, 
the teachings of the Bible are very clear. Don't pursue money as though it's going to be life-giving. And it's not just religious people or Christians who believe this, but lots of people know this. Lots of interviews with people who are wealthy. If, if happiness is one of the outcomes we want in life, it's clear that you could have a lot of money and not be happy. So we all know this. So yet despite that, some of us, we still get caught up in our greed and we pursue money. Or we know not to pursue it, but inadvertently we find that we are. But you look at other things like living for the approval and pleasure of others. We know that that's a bit of a trap, that if, if your satisfaction is always what people think of you, in the dreams you have of that great applause, you have to go through life with the reality of some people, uh, you're just never good enough <laughs> because of that. And so we know, don't build your life in order to have people like you, or even an achievement. To know that, look, it is good to get things done and to make your mark in the world, but if your greatest hope is that I will make a mark in the world, it's terrifying when you realize that the greatest figures of history are mostly forgotten. And so even if we're at the top of excelling, don't build your life on that. So we could look at each of these individual topics and say, don't pursue any one of these things, but, but there's something central that's missing in, a, in our lives. And so we gravitate towards something that, that then we wind up pursuing the complex of things. And in, in a place like Emmanuel and in a city like New York, for a lot of you, it's your career. That's not the case for all of you, but I'm just going to use that as one example. So we know not to make your career the most important thing in your life. And yet there's something there that in, in having a career goal and, and pursuing flourishing and, and wanting to be accepted by people and wanting to accomplish all of these good things, a career becomes a centralizing something that holds things together. So you're not pursuing money because you're greedy, but, but you're able to to seek to increase what you have. And you're not necessarily living for the approval of others, but, but there are those markers that encourage you when you get the good grades or when you get the bonus or you get the award. Um, and we're not necessarily trying to, to live strictly for achievement, but if we have measurable goals that we're meeting, there's a sense in which somehow something is holding things together so that simultaneously we're trying not to be idolatrous, to use a biblical concept, but we wind up using our time and energy for something that, at least as you get older, you find that, that none of these particular things satisfy you. And then at some point you start to wonder, well, well why did I pursue this particular complex of things? And then what happens is those who maybe wake up to that wind up reacting in some way that that maybe in the short term feels like a great contrast, but hasn't made the fundamental change. So for example, you realize the system is broken and so you hate the system and you react and you want to tear the system down. And within that group, there's always visionaries and innovators and bright people. There's also a lot of people who will say they hate the system, but what they mean is, I love the system, but I'm just not thriving within it. So it's actually not a hate of the system, it's a resentment. And therefore, we find ourselves thinking that by tearing down the system, we're going to find life, and then we find that all we've done is tore something down without knowing what to replace it with. Religious people get caught up in that. I think what's maybe more, a more typical uh, reaction for Christians, um, if the Bible runs after money, we're going to uphold poverty as, as an inherent value. 
Or if people live for the approval of others, we're just going to go away into the woods and withdraw from society. But then you find that 50 other people decided to withdraw from society as well, so you take a vow of silence. Let's just not talk to each other. And, and you find that in that, you're realizing there's something that's not right, but, but every time I try to fix it, fundamentally I'm doing, I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I'm still actually trying to achieve, but now I'm not trying to impress a boss, but I'm trying to impress God, or I'm trying to um, convince myself that I'm okay. And there's something there that's missing. That what John says is, if, if God is the giver of life, Jesus was sent into the world so that you would know God. So it's not just having information about God, but it's having a kind of connection that's life-giving. So for any of you who are not Christian, um, the, the, the initial thing is, if you are disconnected from the creator, the maker, the giver of life, that first connection can be life-giving. So, so see that John is, is inviting you there. For those of you who are Christian, you would say, well, I've made that connection. But what we find is that we, we imagine it like plugging into a wall, that if I could connect with the, uh, the energy force, then I'll, I'll be fine. And what we do is we, we contain and compartmentalize God to a certain part of our lives, that, that faith does something, but we still lack that coherence, that central reality that says whether or not I pursue a great career or money or whether or not I want some sort of recognition or whatever I'm doing, is there anything in it that's holding my life together? I think one of the things that, that um, John will show us in his book is that, is that none of us have really grasped the centrality of this life-giving God and how if he makes his way into everything, the whole of our lives can start to cohere. And then it's not about whether or not you're rich or poor or popular or unpopular. But in your individuality, you could find, despite your circumstances, there can be a thriving. And so in this lifeless life, John presents to us a picture of simplicity. And uh, that simplicity includes uh, the sense that okay, the world is complex, but God is, is telling you something basic, which is I've sent Jesus into the world. And, and that starting point of trusting him begins a life that as you deepen is life-giving because we're always looking for the complicated thing because our lives are complicated. So to take some examples from the, the period of the kings in the Bible, there's a famous story with a guy named Naaman who is a Syrian and he has leprosy. And he hears that the God of Israel uh, is powerful and maybe somebody in this nation could heal him. So he comes and Elisha the prophet says, go into the Jordan River and wash seven times. And the Jordan is not the most impressive of rivers. And he was expecting, well, if you're a, a prophet or a priest of this God or whatever function that you play, wouldn't you have something remarkable and profound and intense? And he says, just go and wash. <laughs> This God is a little bit different than how others conceive of gods. Or in the same section of the Bible, Elisha. There are these prophets of Baal, one of the local gods. And, and Elisha raises a question, uh, is this God real? Well, let's have him show up. And so those prophets of Baal wind up cutting themselves and screaming out and doing all of these intense things. And when they're done, Elisha calls in the name of the Lord. And the Lord comes with his power. There's something about us that the, the more we can't grasp the complexity of life, the more we find that whatever's trying to hold it together, it, it, we're just, we get anxious, we get burnt out, we wind up running from one thing to the next. 
It's not that life is simple, but John is presenting us with something clear and simple and saying, if you're willing to, to see what God has done and where he's leading you, um, you don't have to figure everything out, you don't have to be great at everything, but you can have a life-giving reality come into your life that starts to, to bring coherence, starts to pull things together. And so that's what we're invited into, out of a lifeless life that is our default mode of existence into new life. So that's the second thing I'm going to talk about is new life. So um, what I'm trying to highlight in this opening chapter, there's a certain simplicity to what John is claiming we need to, to do. We need to receive the life that God offers to us. But there's a, a major complexity in our world, which is it's filled with problems that we don't know how to fix. And so, so what we're presented with is God comes to do the impossible, complex things we cannot do. But our initial job is to receive it. And so this passage is so profound that the more you read it, the more you study it, and the more you recognize how it links into the Bible, you realize or what it seems to me is that John himself is having trouble trying to articulate just how profound this thing that God is offering to us is. And so he's drawing on words and images so that, we, so that it's simple enough that we could understand it. Um, but it's so deep that, that as we grab it, what John seems to indicate is, but don't let go. <laughs> Allow it to keep working itself in. So, so the message in verse 9 is there's a true light if people's hearts are darkened, if people are walking in darkness, if we're feeling lost, there's a true life, a true light, and that, that which gives light to everyone, it was coming into the world. So John's claim here is not that we are able to find some way to get out of this world and its mess so that we can find God and take hold of him, but that in the impossibility of reaching up and taking hold of God, God instead sends Jesus in to take hold of us. And so this coming into the world speaks about the complexity of what God has done and the simplicity for us to receive it. So as he tries to articulate for us who this person is and how it's hopeful, you could see he uses a variety of words and images that remind us that Sometimes language is not enough. So, you know, we have ideas and words are how those ideas come into reality. And so if we're eating together and I would like the knife that's next to you, I can say, please pass the knife. And, and the thoughts become words. And so now you uh, can interact with what's in my brain. Um, but words, they're still out there. You could hear words. Uh, verse 14, it's not that the thought became a, a word, but that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this light that's coming into the world, light is something you see, is a word that we hear, but the claim is not that Jesus comes with a message, but that Jesus is the message. That's the thing is, we've had the scriptures, we've had the prophets, now there's this Greek word logos, so there's thousands of pages on what is logos and what did John mean by it. You could read that, but, but as a simplification, he's saying uh, 
the message that we had heard announced became a reality, the idea that became words. Now the word that was spoken as God from the beginning said, let there be light, that same creative word is not something that we just heard, but it's something that dwelt among us. God's message came in so that we can grasp it. Um, for most of us, the way language functions is that clarity, simplicity, rules of grammar allow us to communicate. And so for most communications, you want to be clear and to the point. And the kinds of things that attorneys do with contracts, maybe not clear and to the point, um, but certainly trying to use words to make sure that if, if two people trying to negotiate something, that, that there's a plainness that's there. This week, I was with somebody who recently went through a terrible tragedy. What a conversation as he's trying to share with me what he experienced and doesn't fully understand it and doesn't know how to take that and, and put it into words and my trying to offer him some comfort when I don't understand what he's experiencing or how to comfort him. And yet, what do you do when two people are together? <laughs> You're supposed to talk. That's how we connect. There's some things that that words that are so necessary are insufficient to communicate. So John talks about a word that becomes flesh, but, but then he talks about light in verse 5. Uh, the light shines in the darkness. Uh, I'm sorry, actually, I'm, I uh, grasped onto the wrong verse there. Um, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Um, and verse 4 then says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's saying life came into the world. What is life? And it's almost like he needs to pivot with the, with the image. The life that came into the world was what? It was light. Can you see life? I don't know. But you could see light. So it's kind of, you know, the, the language that we use in ordinary convention. Then you have the poet who wants to describe something so beautiful or something so terrible that our normal forms of speech just can't communicate it. So you develop your own form, the sonnet. Or what's popular these days is you, you break the forms. You recognize that the grammatical rules, while necessary for, for or, you know, you wouldn't want in the airport the welcome signs to break the rules of grammar. You want that to be clear and efficient. But that's because it's telling you where the exit is and what documents you need. How do you understand what life is and the glory of God? How do you understand the pain of the human experience? You can't come up with a summary sentence. And so Jesus here, life comes into the world. What is it? Well, it's a word. Not just that we hear, but it's, it becomes flesh. It's a life that's like light. John is saying we, we saw something. We heard something. We, we touched something. There was something that was so tangibly present that we want to invite you into it. What is it? I don't know. How do you explain it? And he's, he's using these words to say it's, it's life itself. It's kind of like a word that became flesh. It's, it's like a light that shines in the darkness. And, and that's enough maybe for us to recognize through that imagery uh, the kinds of ways God is trying to help us and get our attention. So in verse 5 where it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So light comes into darkness, and yet there's something about the life that comes among the dead. 
the words that come among the deaf, that the light that comes to the blind, these things that we normally don't have the, uh, the ability to, to recognize and respond to. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So you have the world that doesn't know God. But now you have people that should know God, and yet when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. What did they do instead of receiving him? They rejected him. And if you've ever found yourself in the beginning of the Bible saying, what is so wrong with Adam and Eve eating fruit? <laughs> so God comes among them, and then they deny that they ate the fruit, and why is that the most terrible thing in the world? And then you see how the story of the Bible grows and develops. And you find that, that what happens there, what happens when God comes among humanity and says, where are you? What do we do? Do we turn to him? Um, if Jesus was the one who was in the beginning, the one through whom all things were made, when he comes, the word become flesh, the life that became white, when he was there so that all of the great power and glory and honor of God was somehow contained in him, instead of recognizing him, we rejected him. And the Christian story is remarkable because it says for God to give us life, the problem is so complex and terrible that God can't just give us life as if we would receive it <laughs> because we don't understand it. We don't have the categories to see it, to hear it, to make sense of it. And so the Christian story is God gives life not by sending more life into the world, but in sending life into the world so that in our taking life from God, God would make it possible that we could receive life from him. That's the oddness of the Christian message, that Jesus who comes, the one through whom all things were made, uh, in his rejection, God makes it possible that we could be accepted. And so then the Christian story, if you're willing to stop and say, wait a second, John is drawing my attention to Jesus. If I look there, what am I going to see? His rejection was a dark moment. And yet John says, Jesus came as light into the darkness, and we didn't recognize him, we didn't know him, we didn't receive him, but the darkness did not overcome the light. And there's something there in the picture of the cross is the picture of the ultimate rejection of God. God sends Jesus into the world, and what do we do? We crucify him. But in that dark moment of sending him out of the city, of nailing him to the cross, in trying to push God away, not that anyone knew that's what they were doing, but they just didn't know God, so didn't realize in their foolishness that functionally that's what they were doing. Then, in that darkness, there's a kind of light that shines in Jesus that is quite deep and profound, but it's simple. It's kind of like when you live in a city where there's so much man-made light that there are stars in the heavens that are there, but we don't see them. And you go out of the city into darkness, and then you realize uh, there are these lights that are so powerful that they're unfathomably far away, and yet there they are. In the crucifixion of Jesus, it's like we pushed God as far as we could away, and it was a moment of great darkness because of that connection. If, if God is the giver and sustainer of life, the rejection of God feels like more freedom for myself, but it results in less life for me. So we push God away in Jesus, and there in the darkness, it's like that distant light to say, but actually, something of the glory of God in Jesus still shined. When he was rejected, we hated him, but he still loved us. We sought to take his life, and he sought to give us life. 
And one of the reasons that Christianity is a unique help to suffering people, people who in this world feel like they're failing, it because, it's because in the darkness where, where nothing else that the world is offering is offering us light, there's a kind of light that we sometimes haven't been able to see. And John is saying it's kind of like a North Star that you could reorient in your darkness uh, where there's no other hope. If the light of God is shining somewhere and you reorient your life there, you will find that there's life, there's light, there's a word, there's something to take hold of that then gives new life. And so if, if the cross was darkness, the resurrection of Jesus was a light. So, so no matter how many lights there are in Times Square, when the sun rises, they just shut them off. It's not even worth having most of them on except for a few billboards. If, if the death of Jesus was our pushing God away, and yet in the darkness the only light left is the, the grace and mercy of God offered to us, the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that God sent his son into the world, that life uh, took flesh and dwelt among us, that now if Jesus has drawn near, it's not simply that we have light, but by his light we would see everything, that it's a new life that is completely transformative because it becomes comprehensive. And so that is what John is saying is offered to us in verses 12 to 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That unique description about Jesus, was Jesus born of the will of the flesh, the will of man? Did two people decide we want to have children? Well, this fascinating story about a virginal conception. Jesus comes into the world through a new creative kind of work of God. It seems by analogy that God will do that new creative work in you, even if the life we currently have is because two human beings came together. There's a new life, a spiritual life, that comes that makes you a child of God. And it's given to you. That's the thing is God gives that to you and it's a costly gift, his life, so that we would have life. So what do we do, verses 12 and 13, to all who received him, who believed in his name? And maybe this week, think about those two words in relationship. What does it mean to receive Christ? That's kind of hard. What does it mean to believe in Christ? That's kind of hard. They're not the only two words, but, but there's a relationship between believing and receiving that might be worth your thinking about. What does it mean that God has done something. And, and look, there's a lot for us to learn and a lot for us to do. But in the Gospel of John, J Jesus says, my work is to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that you would believe in the one that he sent. It's that simplicity, which is Jesus did the work that we could not do. He gave his life for us. The will of God was that he would give his life, but the will of God is that we would receive it. What does he want? He wants us to trust him. And, and the beginning of that faith, of that receiving, is where new life comes. And so, um, the picture in the Bible that, that, you know, maybe for some of us we think, you know, um, I'm blind and I can't see, I'm deaf and I can't hear. Um, so how does God communicate to us? And, you know, in our communication, if somebody is deaf and they can't hear our words, we, we rely on one of the other senses. We use sign language, something physical, something visible. If somebody's blind and they can't see, we give them braille, something that they can touch. What happens when you don't know God? You can't see him, you can't hear him, you can't understand. It's not that we need to see, it's not that we need to hear, 
the imagery, it's, it's like we need life from the dead. The problem is so bad on our own, the problem is so complex that we can't fix it, we can't understand it. But the power of God winds up being demonstrated. So in John, there are these seven signs as we get to the end of the series. The last one, Lazarus, who's dead several days and in the tomb. Jesus stands in front of the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. Did he make a deaf man hear? No. Lazarus would not have come out if any one of us called him, not because he was deaf, not because he couldn't find his way to the door because he was blind. But the picture is that Jesus is able to call the dead to life. He's able to make the blind see. He's able to make the deaf hear. He's able to make those who are languishing thrive. There's something utterly unique, uniquely life-giving. And there's a complexity as God deals with our world and all of its brokenness. But John wants us to begin with a simplicity. Trust him. And as you walk with him, he will show you deeper things. So the last thing I want to talk about this morning is full life. We have our lifeless life, but, but understand Jesus is offering us new life. That's real. That's really offered to us. And where we begin in the simplicity of receiving it and believing it, there's a growing depth that we're told over time leads to the kind of fullness that we desire. So this birth analogy, it's like being reborn, is helpful because babies have life, but there's so much they need to learn. And learning can be exciting. And so uh, the infant who can't taste all these various foods eventually um, can. And so, so there, there's a spiritual analogy there, which is the Christian life begins simply. But as we grow in depth and work it out, um, there's greater things to be experienced, but there's also challenges. The thing is, we don't necessarily have that fullness. The picture here is not that once you are born again, your life is full and complete. It's once you have this new spiritual birth that's given to us freely by God, you then are connected to the one in whom the fullness is. So it's not that your life instantly becomes perfect, but by connecting with the giver of life, the one who will shine light, the one who will speak a true word to you, all of these various images, we find that we are connected with the one who is full. So verse 16 says, from his fullness we have received. That's what John is claiming is there's something full in Christ that is hard to see because it's embodied, it's fleshly, it comes into our world. We don't yet understand it. But from that fullness you will receive. So you, you don't join with Jesus and then get on with your life. But in receiving him, you, you live new life with him. And the claim that John is saying is we have seen things that we can't describe. But as you walk with Jesus, he will show you these things as, as you will grow and mature. I saw a movie this summer. Um, there's a mild spoiler in it, so I won't name the movie, although this is from the very early scene, and the reality is I could, but just for extra caution. Uh, in the beginning of the movie, you meet somebody who's kind of a middle-aged guy. His life is boring. He works a boring job. His family, he likes them, but it's just an ordinary family. And you get a sense in which this is a guy that feels like he's a bit of a loser. That's, that's the, the, the picture that you get from the beginning. And then something happens. At night, two people break into his house. He wakes up and he hears noises downstairs. And he goes downstairs with a flashlight. He hears something, he grabs a golf club. And then there are two people, one pulls a gun on him. And it's remarkable if you go back and rewatch it, he's utterly calm. <laughs> and yet, 
he's there, these people are gonna rob him. His teenage son jumps down the stairs on one of these burglars, has him in a chokehold, and is basically yelling to his father, you've got the golf club, whack the other person, and we're good. And instead, the father says, let him go, let him go. And the kid lets the guy go, the guy has an act of spite, punches the kid, the two get up and leave, and then the son says something, that I cannot repeat the language because this is a church service, but he was disappointed in his father. And then the police come to take the report, and one of the cops is kind of like, you know, if it was me, I might have protected my family. And the guy's sitting there looking like he's a loser. But then as the movie goes on, you find that actually he's this highly trained specialist that then, in, like in movies today, where he winds up taking on 15 people at a time with, with weapons. And what happens is he tried to leave that life for what he thought would be a better life. And then, and then he explains that scene, which is not that he was cowardly, not that he couldn't help. He looked into the gun, the one who was pointing at him, and he was so trained, he saw there were no bullets in the chambers. And he noticed that the other person was nervous, that his expert assessment was, these are not lifelong criminals. These might be desperate people who did something, and instead of killing them that I might have the right to do, I'm going to receive this and, and let them go. And I think for many of us, the middle-aged, boring guy. I don't know how many of you relate to that type. Uh, as the movie goes on, there's a sense in which there is this excitement of, wait a second, there's something so profound in this person that we misjudged. Um, John is saying Jesus came into the world, and we wanted the Messiah who was going to destroy the Roman Empire, who was going to raise up the army. And because we didn't know the true nature of God, we thought perhaps that when he was crucified, he was weak. <laughs> and instead, what we have is God is so wise and powerful that he could discern that the thing that he needs to do the most is to take that in order that as we trust him, then the remarkable power that's in him will start to be at work. One day that God will demonstrate the fullness of his power against all of the dark forces. In the meantime, he says, in your weakness, in your brokenness, come to me. And as you walk with me, you will start to see that you haven't understood just what was in Jesus. John is saying we saw things that we, we can't even put into words. It's kind of like a word becoming flesh. It's like life, but it's, it's a light that shines in the darkness. And, and there's something there that John is saying, walk with this figure. There's a fullness. And so a fullness of what? This passage gives us three things. John, in verse 14, says, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so there's a fullness of truth, a fullness of glory, a fullness of grace. And so there's a fullness of truth in Jesus. Truth is reorienting. And yet we play games with truth because truth hurts. We like the darkness because the light exposes to us, exposes us. So we spin things, we try to deny things. Christian discipleship can hurt sometimes because there's a fullness of truth. But if you trust him, if you trust his intentions, if you allow him to do those things to reorient you, you'll find that when your life is reoriented around truth, it simplifies, that you actually begin to thrive, you begin to grow. You don't want to keep falsehood and darkness in your life. There's a fullness of truth in Jesus. When you follow him, his truth will set you free. That's what he claims. There's a fullness of glory, which is that 
we're looking for that sense of transcendence, that sense of beauty, that sense of purpose, that sense of something bigger than us. John says we saw something of a fullness in him, which is why the practice of worship comes uh, in an increasing discipline for those who say, I follow Jesus, uh, the one who gave himself for me, but, but I wanna see these greater things, his life, his power, his eternality. As we focus on those things, our hearts are renewed that there's some truth and beauty and goodness that's bigger than us that, that actually helps take us out of the current weariness, the current concerns, and there's a fullness of glory. But here's the last thing, and perhaps this is the most important, because this claim in Christianity is there's a fullness of grace. And he even uses the language here um, in verse 16. It's not just that we receive grace, but we receive grace upon grace. There's a fullness of grace uniquely in Jesus, which, which is important because if Jesus is gonna be a person of the truth, it's gonna be humbling to walk with him. And at times we're just gonna to wanna to leave. But there's more grace. And if we're seeking a true glory, there's a certain discipline to changing our habits and we're gonna get discouraged and wanna give up, but there's more grace. And what he says is, I will continue to show you things and I will continue to speak to you of things and you will continue to misunderstand but stay with me. And the more that you see in truth of who I am, the more the fullness of truth will come, the more the fullness of glory will come. But what you need to know is the more grace he will pile upon grace. And so if you're discouraged, there's no one you can trust like Jesus who says, I know who you are even if you don't. There's a fullness of me even if there's an emptiness in you. So come to me, I will give myself so that you will have life and when you don't feel good enough, and when you don't believe strongly enough, and you find yourself confused, there's another grace upon the last grace, upon the last grace. And it's that fullness that we cannot exhaust, that if we grow to know the grace of God, we can grapple with the truth, and we could start to see true glory, and what we're told is that's where true life will start to uh, cohere. I suppose if there's one takeaway this week, <laughs> the simplicity of God's grace. He gave himself so that you would have life. You can trust him. There's more grace, and as you wrestle with that, become convinced that God wants you to know he is gracious, merciful, kind, forgiving, life-giving, patient. The more you're grounded in that, the more the whole of your life will start to connect, and you just need to stay with him. So I want to encourage that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we are gathered today, we come with whatever emptiness we're experiencing, whatever longing, whatever regret, but we come because you are full of grace. Lord, we need more grace today. We need more truth. We need more glory. We need more light. We need a clearer word. We need life. Thank you that you gave us this book to persuade us that you want us to have it, we pray for that spiritual working, that we would see it, we would understand it, we would receive it, and that we would trust you. And so give life to our dead bodies. Uh, lead us this week and bless us that we would have more truth, that we would have more glory, and help us to have more grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.